At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Donald Trump is going to be convicted of violating the Espionage Act because there are smoking guns. And then there are the kinds of smoking guns so profound and so productive that they turn the entire eastern seaboard sky orange. And this one is the second kind. CNN got the clip of the actual recording of Trump showing off classified Joint Chiefs of Staff military plans for attacking Iran. And then the Washington Post got the recording. And then the New York Times got the recording. I have not yet checked my high school paper, The Hackley Dial. First, this fulfills the primary rule of Trump. Everything is worse than you could have possibly imagined. He is laughing as he commits crimes prohibited by the Espionage Act. His flunky is making Hillary Clinton jokes. He's making Anthony Weiner jokes. He's ordering Cokes. Second, this has to have come from Mark Meadows. It has to have. Third, this fulfills the prophecy of Ryan Goodman from Just Security. It is not just Trump committing a crime. It is Trump narrating his own crime as he commits it. Fourth, the recording has a postscript, something that was, for whatever reason, not included in the transcript of the tape that was included in the charging document as filed by special counsel Jack Smith. There's bonus content here. Just before the recording begins, the name of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, has been invoked. Donald Trump convicting himself of violating 18 U.S. Code 793, transmitting defense information, a fine, or up to 10 years in prison. We join Donald Trump already in progress. These are bad, sick people. That, but, was, that was your coup, you know, against you. That's well, it started big, right at the Like beginning. when Millie's talking about, oh, you were going to try to do a coup. No, they, they were trying right. to do that before you even were sworn in. That's right. No, trying no, to overthrow no. your election. Well, with Millie, uh, let me see that. I'll, I'll show you an example. He said that I wanted to attack Iran. Isn't it amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look. This was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. This was him. This was the Defense Department and him. Wow. We looked at some. This was him. This wasn't done by me. This was him. Yeah. All sorts of stuff. It's pages long. Look. <laughs> Wait a minute. Let's see here. <laughs> Yeah. I just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Mm -hmm. Except it is like highly confidential yeah. <laughs> secret. This is secret information. Yeah. But look, 
look at this. You attack and Hillary would print that out all the time, you know. <laughs> no, she sent it to yeah. Anthony Weiner. Yeah, yeah. The pervert. Um, by the way, isn't that incredible? Though? Yeah. I was just saying because we were talking about it, and he, you know, he said he wanted to attack Iran and what. This was done by the military, given to me. Uh, I think we can probably, right? I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to try to figure out a, a yeah. See, as president, I could have declassified yeah. it. Now I can't, you know, but this is Yeah, now, now we have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so yeah. cool. I mean, it's so, I'm, look, we here and I have a, and you probably almost didn't believe me, but now you believe me. No, it's, I believe it's you. It's incredible, right? No, hey, bring some, uh, bring some cokes in, please. That, as CNN and later The Post and The Times aired and posted it last night. From the meeting Trump held with two writers working on, well, ghostwriting, Mark Meadows' autobiography, recorded at Trump's club at Bedminster, New Jersey in July 2021. The most fawning references and the loudest sycophantic laughter appears to be from the Trump aide Margot Martin. And the new part? At the end, Trump continues to marvel that Milley's name has been invoked, and when out of his big pile of papers, Milley's secret plan to attack Iran, quote, just came up. The new quote we had not heard or read before, it's so cool, I mean, it's so, look, her and I, and you probably almost didn't believe me, but now you believe me. Trump has violated national security to boast how cool it is that he has this document. It's like me and a baseball card, except there are very few goddamn classified baseball cards. And the recording not only disproves, but defies his latest lie about this meeting, that he might have been talking about Iran and General Milley, but there were no classified or defense documents being shown to unauthorized people, just, quote, newspaper stories, magazine stories and articles on tape. Trump is heard saying, see, as president, I could have declassified it on tape. Trump is heard saying, these are the papers. On tape, Trump is heard saying, this was done by the military and given to me. On tape, Trump is heard saying, let me see that. I'll show you an example. On tape, Trump is heard saying, it's pages long. You hear him flipping through the pages, showing it off. Let's see here. On tape, Trump is heard saying, except it's highly confidential secret information. He not only breaks the law by showing two aides and two people working for Mark Meadows defense information, maybe classified defense information, but he repeatedly confirms he is holding the document as he does so. And he confirms who wrote it and why and how long it is. And he's showing it off, presumably with that same idiotic smirk on his face that he'd show when he signed some nefarious act in the Oval Office and he would hold it up for cameras so you could see his gigantic madman's electrocardiogram signature. It could be worse for him in one way only. If there was video, that assumes there isn't video. Ten days ago, Ryan Goodman from Just Security went on the Bill Crystal podcast. I quoted him here, and he asked rhetorically what would happen if the recording itself of the conversation about the Millie Iran document were to turn up. It would be something visceral, something undeniable. Trump, in essence, doing play-by-play of his own crimes as he committed them. What would happen, Goodman wondered, to the dynamic of this case, to the public's understanding of it, to even the unblinking belief by some in Trump's cult that he's not lying if a major news organization were to get a copy of the recording and put it on television or on YouTube? As I phrased it on the 19th, not a transcript, but Trump's actual crime in Trump's actual voice, as Trump actually commits it. Playing on CNN.com, NewYorkTimes.com, WashingtonPost.com. Let me go check the HackleyDial.com. Now available without a subpoena or a search warrant or a prescription. And I am not 
kidding myself, and you should not kid yourself. It will not sway a majority of his cultists. These are the 21st century versions of the people who literally drank the Kool-Aid at Jonestown. They will not be converted to reality. But it will sway some of them. Hell, I expect Donald Trump to die of old age in prison, but I think he's guiltier than I thought he was before I heard that recording. That recording does raise a procedural question, again brought up by the estimable Mr. Goodman. Why has Trump not yet been charged with a crime in New Jersey, where that recording was made and those events took place? Retaining the Milley document took place in Florida. He's been charged for it there. Remember, they still don't know where the Milley document is. But if Trump could somehow convince a jury that he had declassified it, even though he clearly implies on tape that he had not declassified it and wistfully regrets that he had not declassified it, if he does that or he just fuzzes the issue up sufficiently, the fallback would be to charge him under the transmitting clause of the Espionage Act. That only has to be defense information. It does not have to be classified. And it's on a recording that recording. Where did CNN and the Post and the Times get that recording? Mark Meadows. I, I don't literally mean from him. I don't know. But from him and or his legal team? Who else has a motive? There's no real damage to Jack Smith's prosecution of Trump if the Milley Iran document is revealed. I mean, if the plan is to introduce clips at the trial of Trump during the 2016 campaign, talking about Hillary Clinton mishandling secret information, tapes that have been out there now for seven years, having this tape out there is not going to spoil the jury pool, but I do think the special counsel's office releasing it themselves would presumably violate at least some of the 75,000 pages of Department of Justice Boy Scout rules. I mean, in Jack Smith, after all, we have a special counsel who, until he confirmed the indictments, none of us knew what his voice sounded like. In theory, this could be the copy recorded by the Trump side, presumably that Margot Martin, the one who was at the Miami hearing when Fox misidentified her as Melania, but she was at the Miami hearing at Trump's side. She has not abandoned him yet unless she's wearing a wire. You think the two unidentified writers working for Meadows released this tape? It's always seemed unlikely to me that they were involved with the tape, getting first to Jack Smith and now to Anderson Cooper, largely because if Meadows was paying them to interview Trump for his, quote, autobiography, the recording legally belongs to Meadows, not them. I mean, prosecutors could subpoena whoever hit the record button on the phone, but this fits in much, much more correctly as a piece inside the Mark Meadows has flipped on Trump jigsaw puzzle. Just amazing and clear as a bell. Fine recording, whoever did that one. There is, though, one other gigantic surprise on that recording and in fact, it's after the other surprise at the tale, the one that I had already mentioned. Oh, Donald. Bring some, uh, bring some Cokes in, please. Just some Cokes? No cheeseburgers, Donald? And 44 large fries? McNuggets? Two 40-piece sets? Two dozen shakes? A lot of ketchup on the side? Oh, and get a Grimace's birthday meal. No, no, no. Two Grimace's birthday meal. Ah, hell. Let's have a party. Make it four. One for everybody. Also, last night, Jack Smith's investigation of the fake electors scam moved forward a little bit further. The Washington Post reports that the special counsel is trying to ascertain if that same crowd of cheesy lawyers I mentioned yesterday, Kenneth Cheesebro, Jeffrey Clark, John Eastman, Jenna Ellis, Rudy Giuliani, and Kurt Olson were following specific instructions from Trump or from others about the fake slates of electors, and if so, what those instructions were. But the Post also reported a new missive from Trump's all-purpose schlub Jason Miller, 
written to an executive at an ad agency producing campaign ads for Trump. And this goes to fraud charges, probably wire fraud against Trump for raising money from the public to roll back a stolen election that Trump definitively knew had not been stolen. Quoting the Miller message, the campaign's own legal team and data experts cannot verify the bullshit being beamed down from the mothership, unquote, wrote Miller. Miller goes on to tell the ad exec that that was why Giuliani and the lawyers were, quote, O and 32. And tying into both of those sets of possible future indictments, fake electors and financial fraud, and mixing in yet a third possible set for a total of four, the Post also reports that Smith's investigators will tomorrow interview the Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who was on the end of the I just want to find 11,780 votes phone call, which could be its own electoral interference crime federally and not just in Georgia, and which, bringing us back full circle, is on tape. There is also a new development in a fourth prong of the Smith investigation. NBC reported that approximately half a dozen Secret Service agents have testified to the Smith grand jury about Trump on January 6th. And nobody knows which ones they are or what they saw or how close they were, but they are not testifying about classified documents or fake electors or wire fraud. They are talking about Trump and the violent coup attempt on January 6th. And then there's a little chaser here for America's bum, Rudy Giuliani. His old pal Lev Parnas tweeted out of the blue yesterday, quoting, Sources are telling me that Rudy Giuliani is having a meltdown and drinking heavily. Okay, your point, sir? I mean, that sounds like any Giuliani day since roughly 1985. Quoting Parnas again, after being sanctioned, he fears that he is about to get indicted and doesn't know who to turn to for help. It's time to pay the piper, Rudy. Hashtag, hashtag Lev remembers. Hey, bring some Cokes in, please. And uh, a tanker truck full of vodka for Rudy. And just to wrap this up, a reminder of the story behind all of these other stories, fascinating as they are, ultimately they are not the point. When I hear Trump's defenders and apologists say that the rest of us will do anything to keep him from being president, my instinctive reaction is always the same. And a reminder of just what subhuman scum Trump and the slime he brought into the White House, our White House, really are. Miles Taylor, once the anonymous staffer, has been letting loose nuggets from his upcoming book, Blowback. This appeared last night in Rolling Stone. Taylor quotes a conversation between the disgusting Nosferatu of the Trump cult, Stephen Miller, and the then commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard, Admiral Paul Zakunft, who is now retired. Miller. Admiral, the military has aerial drones, correct? Admiral Zekunft, yes. Miller, and some of those drones are equipped with missiles, correct? Zekunft, sure. Miller, and when a boat full of migrants is in international waters, they aren't protected by the U.S. Constitution, right? Zekunft, technically no, but I'm not sure what you're getting at. Miller, Tell me why, then, can't we use a Predator drone to obliterate that boat? Zekunft. Because, Stephen, it would be against international law. Miller. The United States launches airstrikes on terrorists in disputed areas all the time. Unquote. Miller and the Admiral deny that was their conversation. Taylor adds that Miller, quote, wasn't interested in the moral conflict of drone bombing migrants. He wanted to know whether anyone could stop America from doing it, unquote. I am, for some reason, unconvinced by Stephen Miller's denial. Also of interest here. 
Did you watch them play the Trump recording on CNN last night? Or did you watch anything on MSNBC, NBC, CBS, ABC News? If so, you watched the work and the innovation of a man named David Borman, also twice my boss, and once in the middle of a couple of my lawsuits involving a total of roughly more or less $100 million. David Borman died Sunday. I want to talk about him. He was a very special man. That's next. This is Countdown. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions. Dateline, Palo Alto, California. Imagine being the president of and key witness for a television channel in the deposition stage as it is suing its star newsman, and its star newsman is suing it, with a total of around ooh, $100 million on the table, and the lawsuit ends, and the network does not win the lawsuit, and you stay in friendly touch with that newsman for the rest of your life. David Borman died Sunday, complications after hip surgery, his family reports. He was 69 years old. He and I had nearly identical personalities and were essentially equally larger than life in an office setting, and therefore it was almost inevitable that I do not remember us agreeing on anything. And yet, we never had a fight. We did not have crosswords, not even when we were on opposite sides of a lawsuit with $100 million on the table. I had last heard from him barely four months ago. It was about this podcast, which he listened to every day. It was always friendly on my end. It was always friendly and supportive on his end. And frankly, when it came time for him to be deposed in my lawsuit against current TV, and it's against mine, a decade ago, that friendliness probably guaranteed that Current was not going to win the lawsuits. Without getting too deep in the weeds, the bottom line was this. Current needed to prove I was not talking to management. And they were sure the network president, David Borman, would back them up. And for eight hours or so in a taped deposition, he kept saying that, no, I was actually above average cooperative. And he always looked forward to talking to me, never had a problem finding me. 
and I was the least anchory type person he'd ever worked with, and he knew what that meant since his father was a news anchor. The more I have thought over the years about what I know of what he said under oath, the more I begin to wonder if he didn't say all that deliberately so the case would swing my way. Not that he wanted me to have the money or he had something against current TV, but David Borman was, for all the innovations and the insight and the leadership, David Borman was about the people who worked with him. He was about the anchors and the reporters and the writers and the producers and the associate producers and the interns and the guys who cleaned the studio. Ultimately, they were what mattered to him. He showed that affection for them in many different and sometimes indecipherable ways. But his business was about people. Borman, and that's what everybody called him, Borman had 50 ideas a day. 50 original ideas a day. 50 were original, 10 were genius, 30 had promise, and 10 had the potential to destroy your show, your career, and or his network. They brought him in as president of Current TV during my fiasco there, and not long after he came into my office and he said he had an utterly new idea for how to cover the upcoming 2012 presidential election. Now, mind you, an utterly new idea for how to cover a presidential election? Basically, everything you see on television on election night to this day is something David Borman thought up or improved. Big screens, touch screens, disappearing screens, anchors standing, reporters appearing by a hologram, the data boards, the graphics, the graphics that move in, the graphics that move out, everything. To say nothing of the content. And now he had an utterly new idea? We were current TV. We were no longer paying our bills. Okay, they won't let me spend any money. I mean, maybe I can get you a sidekick on debate night and election night, but that's it. So, so here's my idea. Let's carry the debates live anyway. I just looked at him thinking that this was the day he finally went round the bend, and I started to smile. I'm serious. We put you and whoever the hell else works here in a room on couches and you're all watching a big monitor, and we have like four cameras positioned behind the monitor at different depths. So we only see the back of the monitor, or maybe we see blurry reflections of what's on the monitor in, in other glass behind you or something like that. But the cameras are all trained on you guys. Our coverage of the debates is you, Olbermann, watching the debate. We never show the debate. We never use clean sound from their debate. It's just a TV that's on in the studio that happens to be tuned to the debate. Ambient sound. You hear what's going on, and you describe it to our audience, and you react to it. I just stared at him. And then I said, we'll get sued. And he stroked his beard. I don't think so. They'd have to be able to prove that's what the viewer is hearing at home. And I think we can make sure that all the viewer hears at home is an indistinct mumble that sounds like the debate. I mean, maybe we could even sweeten the audio with a loop of generic sound or other sound bites from Obama and Mitt Romney. I assume it's going to be Romney. So they, they, they really couldn't hear the, the Fox audio or the NBC audio or whichever network's carrying the debate. I sighed and I said, Borman, this is not one of your genius ideas. And he laughed and he said, maybe not. Then uh, why don't you make it better? And I had to confess, I could not. He had assessed our resources, which were nothing. My employers had recently decided to stop paying their debts, which they would do with me shortly, which was why I would sue them, which is why they would sue me, which is why we had no reporters, which is why he would testify inadvertently on my behalf. We also had no feed from the debate sites because they'd stopped paying the bills for the satellite time and the remote studio links. We might be able to get a guest or two to come in and be on our debate night coverage for free chosen from among his friends or my friends, but they would have to pay their own way in in a cab or subway because Current had stopped paying the car service fees, and we were now on our eighth or ninth car service company in as many weeks, and this one was a guy with a beat-up Cadillac who liked to smoke as he drove you around. And all that went through my head, and finally I said, Borman, I take it back. This is one of your genius ideas. We have no chance at doing anything as good as this. 
I mean, it could be the Mystery Science Theater 3000 of debate coverage. And I still think we shouldn't do it. And now he stared at me and shook his head. And why is that? And I said, well, the very reasons you had to figure out how we could do live TV news from a presidential debate when it's just me and some guys watching another network carrying the debate with the sound up but not up full. I said, those are the reasons that this network is not going to still be on the air by election night. I mean, we might get away with doing this. People might even find it's better than watching the actual debate. Depends on whether or not I'm funny that night. But, you know, you and I are going to have to work in this business again soon somewhere else. And no matter how clever this is, we are still pirating the defeat debate's feed. We're, we're pirating it from NBC, ABC, CBS, Fox. They will remember that. And you know what? If it works and the viewers do like it, the other networks will remember it even more. Borman paused and swore. If you are worried about what this will do to your reputation or my reputation, I need to rethink it. You're probably right. All right. Well, if you come up with something that won't end our careers, let me know. I kind of liked this. It's too bad. He rose, and he rose like a very large bird might rise. A lot of noise, a lot of wingspan, often blotting out the sun. And he left my office. I don't think I saw him again. Take a moment and picture David Borman for me. There was an actor named Severn Darden, founder of the Second City Improv Group in Chicago. Huge man, astonishing presence. He was the, the evil human doctor, Culp. Culp in a couple of the Planet of the Apes movies. He was in a Walter Matthau picture called Hopscotch, and he was in the Rodney Dangerfield movie Back to School, and he was in a thousand other films, always very briefly and brilliantly. Could have been Borman's brother. Huge, ate up the whole screen. Same as Borman. And then there was Borman's real-life father. You ever seen the Jane Fonda nuclear accident movie, The China Syndrome with Michael Douglas? David Borman's father, Stan, was the news anchor in that film, and he's in it a lot, and primarily because Stan Borman was a news anchor in L.A. radio and TV and in Philly and in San Francisco. He and his son did not look exactly alike, but they had that same aura. Obviously, that's how David Borman got into news. I mean, he had a degree in French, but his father was in the industry, and he had this unique ability from the beginning to look at the news and say, this looks boring, let's fix that. 1988, he was tired of anchors reading details off index cards on election night, handed them to guys who were sitting at their feet out of camera range. So instead, everything that might come up, he thought of beforehand, every possible factoid, and he put each one of them onto a full screen graphic. For ABC that year, he had 10,000 full screen graphics ready for election night and could call them up on a computer at a moment's notice. 2004, he's running the conventions for CNN. He eliminated the anchor booth. They'd been having anchor booths since radio in the 1930s began to cover the conventions. He had the anchors for CNN join the reporters for CNN on the convention floor. No anchor booth. Less boring, he said. Election night 2004, he got rid of the studio altogether. By 2008, he was tired of all those graphics he had created in the computers. So instead of having all the graphics on just one screen that would then change from graphic to graphic, he built a new set with like a dozen screens standing up all through the set. And he had the anchors change screens and walk around rather than the screens changing graphics and all those big screens that you associate with Wolf Blitzer or John King or that Kornacki guy or whoever. That's Borman. All Borman. By the time I got to MSNBC in 1997, he had already left. His first show there was called The Sight. And while everybody else at MSNBC was just going through the motions about computers and the Internet, tying them together with TV so that NBC could get hold of some of Microsoft's money, Borman put together a tech show, a daily tech show, whose hosts were Soledad O'Brien and Dev Null. Dev Null was a live-action animated guy who looked vaguely like Sideshow Bob. A live 
action, animated guy. Guy in the back with a motion capture suit, talking, ad-libbing in real time, and appearing as Dev Null. 1997. Before that, Borman had done more conventional things. He'd redesigned World News Tonight and Nightline for ABC and the CNN financial shows and most of the NBC News studio shows. And basically, if you see it on TV today or tomorrow or hell for the next 25 years, it's Borman's idea or something somebody took from one of Borman's ideas. I don't want to leave the wrong impression here because it would be one thing, of course, if he was just this fire hose of innovation production ideas. But Borman was not just a pictures guy. He was a pictures guy because, as he often said, you need to make a good television show first so people will watch it so you can tell them what happened, which is called journalism. And you can make it a good television show and never tamper for one second with the journalism. Borman also ran the news. I met him first when I went back to CNN after 9-11, the New York coverage of which he, Line, produced. I was a utility anchorman for CNN at that time. I filled in for everybody from the morning hosts to Greta Van Susteren to Jeff Greenfield. But Borman asked me to be his essayist and long-form reporter for what his bosses tried like hell to make the centerpiece of CNN, News Night with Aaron Brown. But though I was the fill-in anchor for basically everybody else, I was not the fill-in anchor for Aaron Brown. How long do you think it would be before they noticed you're better than he is? We can't do that. That's what Borman told me. Instead, Borman pushed them to put me on every night at 8 p.m. Aaron Brown was on at 10, Larry King at 9. He actually got CNN to sign me to a contract to anchor their 8 p.m. show, 2002, if they decided to have me anchor the show, we would have the contract already. But they also signed somebody else to exactly the same contract, Connie Chung. They chose Connie Chung. You'll be on at 8 p.m. somewhere soon enough, he said. Like six months later, I returned to MSNBC at 8 p.m. And they stuck him with Connie Chung and they eventually canceled Connie's 8 p.m. show on CNN. If my recollections here on the passing of David Borman are a little all over the place. I guess it is a combination of two things. First, shock. I knew him 20 years and I never knew him in good health, but he still seemed eternal. I mean, three years ago with the election coming up, CBS News looked at itself in the mirror and said, crap, we don't have anybody who can do this. Do you think Borman could come in for six months and produce the elections? And he did. Four years earlier, he'd done the same thing at MSNBC, and the next year he was so close to being brought back to knock that whole network and NBC News into shape that he not only went looking for an apartment here in New York, he looked in my damned building. Within the last year, he had peppered me with ideas for turning this podcast into a television news show or a television network or something new. He hadn't figured out what yet. I had no doubt that either I'd be hearing from him about what or I'd be reading of somebody convincing him to try to staunch the viewer hemorrhage in cable news or broadcast news. I thought he was eternal. Frankly, I thought at some point somebody at CNN would go, what do we do now after we've screwed this all up? <gasps> Borman. Too late. The other part of this scattershot version of the life and death of David Borman is, if there was anybody in the last 40 years of television history who had more different things on his resume than I do, it was him. CBS in L.A., ABC News, NBC News, MSNBC, his own company, CNN Financial News, then CNN New York, then running CNN Washington, then running CNN Elections, then the CNN Chief Innovation Officer, then the presidency of Current TV, then his own company again, then the MSNBC and CNN renewal gigs, and the CBS Redux, 18 national Emmy nominations and six wins, and two Peabody's and a Polk Award and a DuPont. As I said to him, almost as many awards as jobs. And he just shot me a sour look and said, at least I have the awards. I want to close with what somebody else said about David Borman. Soledad O'Brien, aforementioned former co-host of a animated character show. On that show, where her co-anchor was a virtual reality guy with purple dreadlocks, she wrote, when the site, which was the name of the show, was about to debut on MSNBC in 96, we were behind schedule and had no control room 48 hours before launch. 
At some point, David Borman just got on the floor and started connecting all the gear. Literally, he built the show control room with about three hours to spare. It was insane. So, do you think that was insane? Did I mention his idea for how we could cover the presidential debates when they weren't on our network and they wouldn't give us the money to send anybody there? Yeah, I did. I'm waiting for a good TV obit of David Borman. Whatever the network, whoever read it, whoever produced it, if it were really good, it would have to acknowledge that all the tech being used in his obit was dreamt up by him. And that at least one person in the control room, as it aired, was taught by him or mentored by him or will miss him always. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally to the number one story on the countdown and things I promised not to tell, and I was just putting the finishing touches on what I wanted to say about the late David Borman when, bang, there it was, freaking Bill Maher in the news again, sitting there with JFK Jr. whining about vaccines, absolutely putting bullet holes in whatever was left of his own career by mistaking Kennedy's madness for courage. Sometimes your first impression of someone is wildly mistaken, and you go years or even decades thinking, you know, I was wrong about them. They're not as bad as I first thought. And then it turns out and it can turn out literally 45 years later, yeah, they were that bad. And your first impression was right. And your revised impression was not right. And the guy was just a reactionary clown in the 20th century and again here in the 21st. Sometime in 1985 or 1986, I saw a movie on cable TV called DC Cab. There was a character in it. And clearly the actor portraying the character was talented and funny, but for some reason I felt like I knew him from somewhere and I really, really disliked him. I remember the feeling was so strong that I stuck around to watch the credits to find out who he was and try to figure out why I didn't like him. His name was Bill Maher? M-A-H-E-R. I had a high school teacher named Bill Maher. But his name didn't have a Y in it, so no, it wasn't him. But I knew three things. He was talented, I didn't like him, and I knew him from somewhere. This is pre-internet, of course. There's no way to find out where I knew him from. Hallowell's annual film guide would be my best bet. Maybe he'd be in the new one coming out. I checked my calendar just eight or nine months from now. 
Eventually, I found out Bill Maher was in the year ahead of mine at Cornell University. He was not at my radio station. I would have recognized him immediately. He was not in my college in the university. Maybe I knew him from a class somewhere. I could never nail it down. And what's troublesome about that is I like to say I have a photographic memory, but it's Polaroids, which I do not always bother to label. Almost everything that has ever happened to me is stuck inside this big, empty head of mine, but often key details like who, what, when, and where, uh, they're just missing. I'm sorry, I forgot to write the year down or the name on the Polaroid. And honestly, in this case, it was not worth the effort. I knew, though, that I was, what was the right word, aware of this guy when we were both at Cornell. Occasionally, especially after I went from ESPN to MSNBC in 1997, a writer would note the coincidence of the university and the years and ask me about it. And I would say just that, use that same word. I don't remember if he was in a class with me or something, but I knew him somehow. I was aware of him at Cornell. On November 23rd, 2000, I went on his old show, Politically Incorrect. Used to be the late night show on ABC. This was an all sports episode. Lennox Lewis, the boxer, uh, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, Mark Cuban, Todd Zeal, who at that point was the first baseman of the New York Mets, and then from Fox Sports, me. When I met Marr, I asked him about Cornell. I didn't know anybody there. I didn't see anybody. I didn't do comedy anywhere. I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't meet you. Well, that settled it. Except during the recording of the show, when Marr contradicted me on some point, I got angry. And there was no reason to get angry. And I dismissed the anger, and I dismissed the moment, except on the way home, I kept thinking, I know him from school, somehow, no matter what he says. And I know I didn't like him. In the course of the next decade, Bill Maher got his weekly HBO political show, and I went back and turned MSNBC into a political network, and the internet happened, so the Cornell juxtaposition became easier for reporters to stumble over, so they would ask a lot more often, and I would tell them the same thing. I can't remember the details, but for 20 years now, I have been convinced I was aware of Bill Maher at Cornell. Finally came the day, March 20th, 2009, when they first asked me to go on real time and Bill Maher, Cornell 78, asked me, Cornell 79, something about colleges. And I said, well, as you know, we overlapped at Cornell. And I don't know if we met or whatever it was, but I was aware of you there. And he interrupted me and said, no, you weren't. And I just went back and answered his question. Now, after every episode of his program, Maher has, or at least had, a little party backstage. I mean, catered with booze and with more guests than there are people in the studio audience, and usually a bunch of models. Having done that show four times, where they will fly you in first class and put you up for the weekend in L.A. just to do their show, and there's a party, I began to suspect that, like many of the guests, Bill Maher does the show just so he can have the party. Anyway, not long after it started, over comes Maher, and he's mad at me. And mind you, even if his allegation that he is five feet eight is correct, I'm just under six four, so he's giving up a lot of height during an argument. And he starts yapping about how I should stop saying I was aware of him at Cornell, and I'm just trying to get publicity off something that never happened, and who could remember that kind of crap anyway? And he never talked to anybody in four years in college because, quote, except for the Ithaca High School students I sold drugs to, unquote. And I notice he's getting heated. And this is just triggering that core belief of mine that I was aware of him in college and I didn't like him. And now it becomes clear to me he didn't like me either. He's getting loud enough, and he's swinging his arms around now, and it looks kind of funny, but apparently it happens in the office sometimes, and this is when Scott Carter, who was the executive producer whom I definitely did know since like 1992 when he worked at Comedy Central with my friend Alan Havey, Scott Carter comes over to defuse the situation. Scott was a three-piece suit kind of guy with the thumbs tucked in the vest who would call a group of men fellows, as in, say, fellows. So Scott comes over and says, say, fellows, with your Cornell alumni reunion here, 
And of course, this makes Bill Maher even angrier. Let me ask you something. I used to drive down from Hobart to see concerts at Cornell. Have to say, I think Cornell was the leading concert school in the nation back in our day. And now Scott starts to list who he saw in concert at Cornell. Robert Palmer and the famous Grateful Dead concert at Cornell at Barton Hall. He was there. And I say, I went to Springsteen. And Mar mumbles something about Loggins and Messina. And I know what Carter is doing here. He's diffusing. And we do a couple of rounds of who saw which Cornell concert. And finally, I say, I can top both of you comic geniuses. I saw Robert Klein in concert at Cornell. Now, it is criminal, but there's an excellent chance you may not know who Robert Klein is. Suffice to say, as prominent a comedian in the 60s, 70s, 80s as George Carlin or Richard Pryor, HBO itself was built on annual George Carlin concerts and annual Robert Klein concerts and everybody else. And Robert Klein wasn't quite as deep or eternal as George Carlin, but he was really on the money during Watergate and during Reagan. So I say, I saw Robert Klein in concert at Cornell, and Marr looks at me funny and not angrily and says quietly, I was at that too. I saw Robert Klein too. And I don't really register that Marr's mood has now utterly changed. He's not angry. He's confused. Well, I say, I can still top you because after that concert, I interviewed Robert Klein. Now Bill Maher starts to squint, and he looks at me, and he looks at Scott Carter, and he looks back at me, and he says, wait, I interviewed Klein after that concert, too. And I'm smiling through all this and smiling and smiling and smiling. And then suddenly, simultaneously, it hits Bill Maher and me at the same moment in the same fullness of detail. And I stop smiling and I shout at Bill Maher, you! And he pulls his arms in towards his stomach and kind of bends forward at the waist and covers his face with his hands. And he says, oh, God, I'm so sorry, Jesus, it can't be. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And while the anger wells up inside me so powerfully I can almost see it in my own eyeballs, Bill Maher's concert-going producer Scott Carter is really confused. Say, fellows, did I miss something? Did I have a brief stroke or episode? And I say, Bill and I just remembered how I happened to be aware of him in school. And Mar still has got his hands over his face, and people are looking at us, and Bill is shouting apologies, and I say, you want to tell him, or should I? And Mar just shakes his body no and mumbles, no, God, you do it, I can't, I can't, I can't. And it all came back to me. For years, I would tell people the story of the Robert Klein concert at Cornell University in 1978. Our radio station co-sponsored his appearance along with the Cornell Concert Commission, and in the contract, we specified that a couple of us real comedy nerds at the radio station would get to go backstage afterwards and tape a brief 10 or 15 minute interview with Robert Klein. Basically, paid, we paid him, not much, but we paid him to do an interview. And when my pal Andy Grossman and I get backstage to talk to Robert Klein and we have our two microphones and two mic stands and three tape recorders, there is this guy, this short guy, and he's yelling at the chief of the Cornell Concert Commission and he's yelling at Robert Klein's manager and he's demanding that he should get to interview Robert Klein because like Klein, this kid says he is a stand-up comedian and he publishes the Cornell Humor magazine and he points at me and he says he should get priority over these, quote, corporate sellouts from the Cornell radio station. I hated him on sight. Oh, wait, I say to him in 1978, and he's small and he's got dirty stringy hair and he's loud. And I say, you're the publisher of the Cornell humor magazine, the Cornell widow. And he snorts and says, I wouldn't get caught dead publishing that corporate sellout Cornell widow. And so I say, Oh, so then, that means you're the publisher of the Cornell Alternative Humor magazine, the not-so-big red or whatever it is they call it. He says, no way. They're corporate sellouts. I publish this. And he pulls out a stack of mimeographed pages stapled together, and there's like a drawing on the front of a naked girl, and handwritten it says it's his comedy magazine. And I look at Robert Klein's manager, and I say, 
So it's 10 o'clock, and if you leave now while, while this idiot is screwing this up, the, the limo can still get Mr. Klein to Elaine's in the city before it closes, right? And the manager is wildly impressed. You know of Elaine's? And I said yes, and I felt like an adult. And I also said, if we give this guy five minutes of our time right now while we're setting up our tape recorders, can we still have 10 minutes with Mr. Klein? And the manager says, good plan. I like the way you think. And he points to the kid and gestures for him to come along. No, the kid shouts. I want half an hour. These corporate sellouts deserve nothing. And now I'm getting angry. I say, buddy, so far, all the corporations in the world have paid me about 100 bucks. So I threaten him. Now, mind you, I believe this is literally true. Since 1967, when I was eight years old, I have started two fist fights. Two in 55 years. I am a man of peace. I am loud, but I am a man of peace. But I say to this guy, you now have two choices, kid. Five minutes with Robert Klein, or I hit you in the face. And he runs to where Klein's manager is still gesturing towards him, and he screams, Corporate sellout! And he disappears to do his interview, and behind him he leaves his little homemade mimeograph, 10- or 12-page humor publication, and I pick it up and I read it and register it and dismiss it before I leave the building. And if I had only remembered what it said on the cover, all the years of mystery and I was aware of him and all that would never have happened because the cover of the magazine read, Bill Maher's Comedy Magazine by Bill Maher. And now, back in, well, technically this is correct, back in real time at the party in the Hollywood studio in 2009, the producer Scott Carter says nothing. And Bill Maher is still doubled over in shame. And I say... Are you satisfied that I was aware of you? And he mumbles, yes. And I say, will you ever question my memory again? And he mumbles, no. And he says, if I need him to do my show or a charity benefit or something, just call. And he says he's ashamed. And he offers me his hand to shake. And we shake. And finally I say, and and by the way, Bill Maher of Bill Maher's Comedy Magazine by Bill Maher, are you a corporate sellout? And he says... Kinda. And that's how I was aware of Bill Maher in college. done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Here are the credits. Most of the music arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown Musical Directors. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc., Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Tony Kornheiser. Everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's countdown for this, the 903rd day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him again while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Until then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters 
every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.